Wherever you are listening, please subscribe to Acid Horizon. This is Acid Horizon, a theory podcast which confronts global crisis and the specter of a world that could be free. This is episode 12, Who is Dark Deleuze? With Andrew Culp. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today we have a special guest, Andrew Culp. He is a professor of media history and theory at the School of Critical Studies at the California Institute of the Arts. He is also the author of 2016's Dark Deleuze, which aims to push back against the prevailing academic reception of Deleuze's thought, as well as numerous papers on continental political theory, media theory, and radical politics. His forthcoming book, Imperceptibility, The Politics of the Unseen examines the politics of refusal through the figures of fugitivity, opacity, and anonymity. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's my pleasure. Also on the show today, we have Will, Adam, and Matt returns to us. So, Andrew, perhaps you could start by explaining what does Dark Deleuze mean and maybe also explain what is the importance of your book in the domain of Deleuze scholarship. Absolutely. So, you know, Deleuze means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Michel Foucault, who was most cited within the social sciences, at least in the Anglophone Academy for so many decades, once said, and I think sort of in jest, that one day it will be perhaps the Deleuzean century. And I take that claim seriously. I say, well, you know, maybe that's the case. And I think just to put it in context, Dillas was gaining a lot of momentum in the early 2000s. And so as I was thinking and writing about it and blogging and, you know, uh, I was in graduate school at the time, I sort of saw different waves and interpretations of Dillas come down the come down the pipe. And I was a bit dissatisfied. You know, I had a I had a radical politics background. I was seeing him being leveraged in various sort of like dry and technocratic and what I saw as very like centrist and happy interpretation kind of ways. And so I wrote a book saying, you know what, if we need to keep the radical heritage of Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari alive, which, you know, that's what their thought was first and foremost before anything else, then I think it's time to revisit these ideas, which are in many ways at least like half a century old and update them for the times. Now, the book, as I understand it, had a mixed critical reception. And I'm just curious, how did the release and initial reception of the book or the continued reception of the book impact the work that you're currently doing? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I, I had this moment when I was writing the book. Actually, I was I was doing it at the University of Washington, which I was doing as a visiting scholar. And I was sitting at a, at a bus stop after, you know, a hard day of writing. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, everyone is just going to roundly condemn me for this. The book is going to be completely drummed out. But then I had this other thought. I was like, who cares? Like, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Actually. If that's not the yeah. way to respond, right, then what is? Yeah. And, and so I was like, you know, I feel like I'm on, on good ground here that like there was this sort of like calcified reception in which some people just want to keep the Deleuze industry going. You know, there are Deleuze journals, there's whole series of Deleuze books in which there's 
kind of a consensus and people play pretty friendly with one another. And I was disappointed about how just sort of academic it was getting and how it really seemed to have lost its original spirit within radical politics. And so the best reception that I've had have actually been with small anarchist presses in well over a half dozen countries so far have translated the book and found me readership in, in, in a wide variety of places. And they're the people who really picked it up and run with it. And, and so I couldn't be more pleased. Oh, I can sympathize with you. I too come from a radical politics background. And when I encountered Deleuze for the first time, I didn't take to the sort of readings that you're railing against in the book. However, uh, there are a few questions that I have about your reading and interpretation, particularly as it pertains to the notion of negativity and positivity. And so I want to press you a bit on the Nietzscheanism of Deleuze as, as a kind of opener here. And maybe even the Nietzscheanism of Foucault that's announced right at the very beginning of Anti-Oedipus, for example. So in laying out the maxims of a Deleuzean revolutionary philosophy, Foucault warns the left against being given over to the sad passions. And maybe we can put a finer point on that in relation to whom Foucault is addressing and what that looks like on the ground in terms of organizing and in philosophy and in 2020. But perhaps the more important question is whether someone who attempts to actualize the prescribed ethics of Deleuze and Guattari can still remain volatile and effective. This is, of course, a loaded question for you, given the theme of your book, which I think suggests at some level that such an ethics of positivity may be insufficient to dismantle systems of oppression. In any case, would you be willing to make a concession at this point that Foucault was maybe right in some vein? Like, in other words, do you think that what Foucault and Deleuze got right is that revolutionaries need to eschew sad passions? Yeah, I mean, this all depends on what sad passions mean, too. And I think in part, understanding historical context might be important here. So for one, I love the Nietzschean vein. We can keep mining that if sure. you want. You know, Nietzsche within France in the early 20th century was in one hand dismissed and another hand thought to be aligned with uh, more fascist thinkers, even though he had a very strong sort of 19th century reception among anarchists and social critics and really vibrant people from you know, I mean, obviously it precedes him, but I would think of like people in and around the revolutions of 1848, not only Marx, but other sort of uh, radical, you know, Republicans of the era. Um, and so the people who kept Nietzsche alive during World War II, which might be a sort of lowest point, uh, were the members of Ossifal, the secret society that included, you know, Georges Bataille, Pierre Klosowski, and so many more that were even in a sort of like avant-garde tradition, which once again was sort of in dialogue with the radicals and revolutionaries of the time. And so I think the sad passions that they're looking at are not so much about this sort of like aggressive, militant, avant-garde politics, but it's much more about the sad militants of the French Communist Party who sold out the revolution, or even the odd antagonism of the neo-Maoist groups that were associated with the student uprisings of May 68. And so in that way, I absolutely align with them. I hate alphabet letter soup um, communist groups these days. I think it's ludicrous that people are still calling themselves Trotskyists and Leninists a century after the historical and material conditions have changed. Um, and so I think there's a really interesting question of what do we mean by sad passions right now? And so maybe you could clarify what, what, what you see as them and, and why you think it's an engagement with Nietzsche and, and what do you think it speaks to in 2020? 
Okay, turning it back on me. Well, the one part of Deleuze's reading that I'm particularly interested in is the notion of resentiment as a typology. So when we think about the multiple nature of forces, as it's laid out by Deleuze, especially under capitalism, and just to put a finer point on it right away, just go right for the example, I'm thinking about how organizing today on the left involves the elevation of moral narratives over, let's say, making material changes. Now, you do see things like materialist analysis and class analysis on the left, online, and in organizing spaces, but by and large, in the mainstream liberal left, you do not. And within certain sectors of the left, there's a focus on managing the effective dispositions that capitalism induces through notions of self-care and so on. And having these priorities does little in the way of making long-term material changes to society. Now, are these things unimportant? No, not necessarily. They are important at some level. But I think those concerns need to be bound up within a creative revolutionary program that's addressing root causes. Absolutely. No, yeah, I, I think we're, we're speaking a similar language. I think we're moving in a similar direction. There might just be some more nomenclature or metaphysical disagreements kind of hiding in the background. I mean, l- let me put three references out to play that I think sort of bring it together, sort of take it out of the Blasian framework, but I think it'll, it'll be helpful to understand where you see that I'm going. So I think Herbert Marcuse is an absolutely crucial yes, figure here. I agree. Um, and for me, you know, he, he is probably kind of an affirmationist, but he's he's not certainly a naive one because he looks at the ways in which, let's say, liberal tolerance and the way in which empowerment initiatives are actually used to uh, constrain. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with so, you there. That's yeah. I love Sarah Ahmed's book, The Promise of Happiness, you know, a Marxist feminist critique of uh, the positive psychology industry. And then probably a third one would be the Plan C Collective's we are all anxious essay, which I think gets at the sort of emotional tonality of everything uh, right now. And so I think that if we try and think through, you know, what might commonly be called like affect theory these days, I think one of the risks that someone like Ahmed would say is that especially in a gendered sense, um, people often get blamed for the oppression that they Mm -hmm. face. And so they're focused, especially through cognitive behavioral therapy, other things, in order to therapeutically shift their own perspective in order to accept the shit that's shoveled in their direction. Yeah. Well, I would say, so, yeah, I would say that the appearance of a politics of blame is the politics of resentment in some sense. I think when certain kinds of blame abound, now this doesn't mean that people are blameless, of course. But I think the sort of injection or instigation of a kind of morality that's tethered to things like blaming or inducements of guilt is in part part of that architecture of resentment that Deleuze is talking about. Oh, yeah, certainly. So so Deleuze in and through the sort of mad uh, author and poet and creative writer Antonin Orteau says he wants to do away with the judgment of God, which is not to do away with judgment. It's a very Nietzschean gesture, but it's to say... It's not about saying that there's some sort of transcendent measure and rule. And for me, I take that more of like a Guy Debord direction of saying, let's stop doing philosophy and let's start doing strategy. That's right. And this isn't to say that there isn't an abstract line that connects strategy to ethics, it broadly construed, and both multiple and individual actualizations of those ethics. I mean, I'll, I'll say the other thing, in and through um, the Tikkun Collective, I have no problem saying that they're enemies and that we need to defeat them. 
you know, like I think they're class enemies. I think they're structural and positional enemies. And I think uh, the problem with the critique of morality is if it becomes too vague or complexifying, I think that that's where we enter into sort of dubious political territory. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in that I could. Um, so one thing that just um, struck me was there's a really good essay by um, Amir Srinivasan, which works at uh, Oxford, called um, The Atmos of Anger. Um, which is a really, really interesting um, philosophical defense of the kind of uh, justifiability and rightness of anger as an emotional response to severe injustices, which I think touched on something Andrew was just uh, saying there. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to add was that um, I, I definitely had the same impression uh, as you did, Andrew, about the, the sort of a reception or the, the ways in which Deleuze has been used in... Um, in academia, because I, I came to Deleuze relatively recently through um, the reading group that um, me and Craig and, uh, and Will came from, reading Antiedipus. And I think, so my, my, my PhD actually engages directly with this, this same problem. Like, how, how has it come about that, you know, you read Antiedipus, and it's impossible to read that as anything other than a really radical critique of capitalism, right? And yet, you don't really see that in the in much of the literature these days, I don't think, on, on Deleuze and, and Deleuze and, and Guattari. And so there's, there's something, something has happened there, and I, I, I would agree that that needs to be pushed back against. It's almost like he's been recuperated in a certain sense, I, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the f one of the first and earliest warnings in their collaboration, What is Philosophy?, which is funny, you know, um, uh, for many people, that's a sort of minor work. They don't read it as much, though. For some people, like within a philosophy program in which they're doing a survey of late 20th century continental thinkers, and they want to play down the anti-capitalism, perhaps their, you know, philosophy is the art of inventing concepts is the only thing they read about DNG. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of starting with looking at William E. Connolly and his work. Um, and there's this mm. amazing passage in one of his um, one of his books where he basically, in so many words, says that unlike all of these Marxists, Deleuze and Foucault were the grown-ups in the room, and they realized that the only way of achieving um, real political change was essentially through a combination of like pressure on uh, global corporations, through protest, through civic engagement, and so on. And I, I just remember reading that and sort of turning to my copy of Antiedipus and going, what the hell is going on here? It was so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so, it's such a, so disconnected. It's like Connolly and a number of these political scientists are decent readers. Yeah. I mean, they pull a lot of material out of DNG, but I agree with you. I have no idea how they're able to say these claims with a straight face. You know, these people who were like, occupying the Sorbonne and saying like the point of philosophy is to destroy capitalism through the most revolutionary means. I mean, like, come on. I mean, that's like, that's the point. That's how they define the, the end point of all of their projects. Yeah. And I just, I just wanted to add like one, one last thing there, just because we were talking about sort of negativity and, um, affirmation. Um, one thing I, I, I've been thinking about this is that there's a, I, I can't remember what it might've been in, um, I think it would, it would have been a Nietzschean philosophy where Deleuze talks about how, for Nietzsche, it isn't about affirming the things which appear, the, you know, the, the, the particular ways in which forces are manifest, but to affirm the underlying forces in their, in their sort of creative potential. And so one way of maybe getting around this question of negativity, um, you know, and Mizantamon in Nietzsche is to say, well, maybe part of the problem is precisely the ways in which today those 
forces of potential creativity are being actively repressed, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the political project that most clearly understands everything that's at stake, that they're really good readers of this philosophy, and they're taking more or less the same tack that I am right now, are the people behind Ill Will Editions. They're a, a multilingual press. They have an amazing assortment of thinkers that they they bring into it. And uh, I do know that someone loosely associated with them uh, helped to do some translations in English of Francois Zouar-Bichvili, who is known quite well within the French world of um, Deleuze commentary. He unfortunately committed suicide, so his work was sort of cut short. But his uh, uh, philosophy of the event, interpretation of Deleuze, is incredibly important. And for him, he says that the event is a difference that makes a difference, you know, sort of going through that sort of Batesonian route, but in that it produces something that no longer resembles the present. And so, like you said, it's not the image of the future, but it's the sort of uh, image and relief of the future that brings the events. And that that difference is in part how we define difference itself, but also revolution and, and politics within a Deleuzean sense. And I think that's an absolute core, and we can oppose that to the more cybernetic ontological Deleuze that's being presented through, let's say, new materialists or the political scientists. I want to hit upon, well, you already brought it up, or I think maybe even Matt brought it up, uh, the notion of concepts in Deleuze. And there's a section early on in the book where you talk about the creation of concepts and I wanted to sort of, you know, just to get a, a sort of broader view of your book here, but also maybe lock in to a section of the book maybe that you find to be most salient or most important to you. So my question is this, when you bring up Deleuze and Guattari's definition of philosophy as the creation of concepts, you deride the insertion of this claim among a host of familiar positive refrains of capitalist culture. And to quote, if constructive thoughts are planted, positive outcomes will be the result, or simply be constructive. Moreover, you gesture towards Deleuze's antipathy towards marketing as a rival concept creator. And then in Dark Deleuze, you are lifting up some of their concepts over others. And this is part of your methodology here, this versus that, right? Which among your elevation seems to you to be the most insulated from the re-territorialization of capital? Mm, yeah. Okay. So for people who haven't read the book, maybe I can describe its form and format just very briefly. Oh, please do. Yeah. Uh, so it's one of these short books and it has a traditional introduction and conclusion that sort of lay out the argument and then try and sort of cash out some of its concepts. But the body of it is almost like a, a chart or a roadmap in which on the left-hand column, I explain or I outline a series of concepts that I say have become the prevailing dominant interpretation of um, Deleuze and often Deleuze and Guattari. And then on the right hand, I propose a series of concepts that I say are already existing, but um, have sort of been forgotten or concepts that are latent or even concepts that I think work well, but have not yet been introduced. And I propose them as contrasting terms in which you more or less have to pick one rather than the other to not just sort of muddy the waters too much and to get rid of these old ones and to promote these other ones instead. Um, I used to, in, in the first draft of the book, I actually had uh, a very clear differentiation between different categories of them. They still sort of show up in four blocks 
but I feel like the top term in each one of these four sections is really the one that helps organize or pull together as an umbrella each section. So the four of them, just to pull out those four concepts for you then, are destroying worlds as opposed to creating concepts, asymmetry as opposed to complexity, escape rather than acceleration, and the outside rather than nomos or a, uh, let's say a conventional um, uh, self-organizing distribution of things. So of, of those four, um, are there any that stick out to you that you'd like me to sort of discuss a bit more? Well, I would say which one of those configurations do you hold closest to your heart? <laughs> mm. Like if you could only deliver us one of those, what would it be? Ooh. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the a, a little brief description of each and then I'll pick Okay, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> I'm into it. So I think the, the outside to me is the biggest and the most open-ended, but it's also the most sort of, uh, let's say philosophical of all of them. And I've somewhat recently been teaching and thinking through the work of Maurice Blanchot. And so it's really my gesture towards him and his great refusal, but it's, it's not the most important. Um, escape was the topic of my dissertation and I never really went anywhere with it. I published a few short essays, but I've completely reworked that project. So that's maybe the least important, but that has to do with what I, how I sort of consider politics. And I'd say it's more closely associated with what fugitivity is within black study and black studies these days. Um, asymmetry, uh, I get through the work of Galloway and Thacker in part, um, to really important media theorists and their book, The Exploit. And I think that's maybe the most, uh, overtly political and strategic of the terms. And so when I'm actually doing practical political work, it's a, it's a deep motivating idea for me, but destroying worlds, I think is ultimately the one that sort of, uh, encapsulates the whole project. And there's a deep Fanonian spirit to it in which, you know, when he's, pulls out the poetry of his own uh, mentor, Aimé Césaire, talks about sort of, you know, the only task worth completing is the destruction of the world. And so uh, part of this is a commentary on the anti-globalization movement. So, you know, in and through the Zapatistas and the idea that anti-globalization was a movement of movements, the tagline that got associated with it a lot of the time was, uh, we want to create a world where many worlds are possible. No, and I, and I like this. I'm not opposed to it, but I think that the pluralism of it, um, to me, leads to a number of conceptual deadlocks or challenges. And so, for me, I was trying to think: how do we get beyond the idea of the creation of multiple worlds? And so, for me, it was going back and reading Fanon and and getting more in conversation with Black Studies, in which they're saying it's about the destruction of worlds. It's about or or the Red Army faction really liked this German pop song, um, whose like title was "Destroy What Destroys You." And so there's yeah, I, I get there's this sort of like Nietzschean problem with it, but it's it's also that thing that I can't get rid of. It just seems to motivate me anytime I think about it. So. Definitely Destruction Worlds. We're actually planning to do an episode exclusively on Nietzschean philosophy, the book. And uh, maybe at the end, we'll kind of come back to some of the Nietzsche questions, but I'll let our other interlocutors jump in. We'll return to Dark Deleuze, uh, which is is a text that, you know, I, I have, I, I do the very thing that 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 people would despise, right? I, I took Dark Deleuze, I, I cut it apart and I gave it to debate students. Um, but we'll get back to that. Um I'm interested particularly in an essay that Matt pushed me towards this week that you wrote on the insurrectionary understanding 
um, of Foucault, particularly because when it comes to uh, utilizations of Foucault in academia, he really is, I think, the standout example of what can happen when you water down and sort of brush off the edges of a particular theorist. And I was wondering if, if you think, particularly in the first section of Foucault's Forgotten Social War, if you think that there are particular utilizations of genealogy that you have found to, to be, rather than moments of bringing the space between practice and theory together, right? Foucault and, and Deleuze make this clear in their prison interview, uh, in their discussion on prisons, um, that this space is one that has come together. But are there any utilizations of genealogy or do you think that the utilization of genealogy is one that has been subjected to the same sort of uh, forces that the joyous canon of Deleuze has? Oh, yeah. People have sliced and diced Foucault up into practically nothing. I mean, there was a funny moment when I was like 19 or 20 and I was still just like a really young theory nerd and I was at a party with some friends and they'd invited some people over who just like we didn't know, but we were getting friendly with, you know, we had a couple drinks and they turned out to be, I think, like police officers or correction <laughs> officers or something. And I was just like, what in the world am I doing in the same room with these people? And I brought up Foucault and they're like, oh yeah, I read Foucault. Of course I know Foucault. And I just like had this like deep moment of fear and reconciliation where I had to be like, okay, they've read it and they didn't think twice about what they do. And yet is, they are still police officers. Right? Oh yeah. They just commit unending violence on people. Like that's their job and they do it with relish, you know? <laughs> right. And there, but there, and two, I, I remember the dark dollars cause I've now, you know, read it twice, once, once seriously, and then once in, in the way that, that Dillows would find just deeply sophistic and just like disturbing. <laughs> um, uh, but one thing that I found was interesting was it's kind of taking the, the, the moments of, of insurrectionary capacity and creating out of it a movement worth speaking its own name. And what is so fascinating about your example here is, again, like part of, of Zizek's mid 2000s sort of uh, interest in political philosophy was that very thing. And here now we sort of see uh, this appropriation of theory creating an incapacity for actual action. And that's why I thought the utilization of Takun uh, and the Invisible Committee is one of sort of deep frustration with radical academia. Like, it, I, I guess that's even an understatement. Uh, almost a hatred <laughs> comes through. Um, but I, I think, is there is there any way, and in your work moving forward, um, to, to sort of see what Foucault um, was doing be, uh, as fundamentally revolutionary in this current context? Because part of what interests me, to bring it back to Zizek, is right in the... Uh, uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting the, the sublime object of ideology. Um, in the sublime object of ideology, he says that there are individuals who will know exactly what they're doing and yet they keep doing it. I think part of it too with Foucault and Deleuze is essentially these are assertions about capital, about liberal notions of justice. And the appropriation of these things is it necessarily an indicator of their lack of capacity? Because I'm not, I'm unsure if, if Foucault would state that, you know, prison guards reading discipline and punish is necessarily a condemnation of 
the academic work there. Because what Foucault is doing is simply laying out how these institutions through epistemological breaks or shifts exist. Is there any way to recuperate it that doesn't have to necessarily go over the top of reformulating the entire academic structure? Yeah, God, I have so many things to say here. So hopefully I don't appear too scattered or I'm not going too quickly. So I'll start with the first thing, which is, you know, Foucault in that series of interviews um, that gets that gets uh, uh, translated remarks on Marx says that he wants his books, especially Discipline and Punish, to be what he calls experience books, where people are not left the same after reading it, which I think is very much how we should be reading the late Foucault on the ethics of transformation. Yeah, particularly the history of madness and discipline and punish. Absolutely. As sort of an experience of history. That's great. Yeah. Um, but I think the other side of that and this is something that I've been mining a little bit, though in the wake of other people's really excellent work. Um, there's this weird uh, encounter between post-structure, French post-structuralist thought and cybernetics that I think that we're going to keep reading more about and trying to figure out more about in the future. And the direct connection is that Lacan, as well as Levi-Strauss, were very into cybernetics. They were friends with cyberneticians. They had reading groups and discussion groups with cyberneticians. And so it, it sort of pervades the sort of early moment of late structuralism and early post-structuralism. Um, but the more that you read on the actual philosophical backing of cybernetics is that they have a really shallow philosophy that is pragmatist in nature, does not actually care about ontology in any way, shape or form. And so it ends up being very, um, based in just like whatever works. Mm -hmm. And you see that in like cognitive behavioral therapy, which grew straight out of cybernetics. Right. Right. And so we might even oppose CBT from psychoanalysis in these sort of like two very different modes. And so there are a few moments in which people like Foucault or DNG get caught up in this sort of very shallow philosophy of whatever works. Um, and you see that coming out in these sort of political paradigms too, where people just find themselves back in things like policymaking. And they're like, oh, yes, I want to do whatever policy works the best. And Foucault is my guy for it. And right. There actually is that little complicity in there because I don't know if they have the wider paradigm or understanding of why they should be doing what they're doing, which is why someone like Zizek seems very appealing because he's not willing to give any ground to that. So no, I think I think that's true, and I think that's that's exactly right as it relates to to contemporary thinkers who can't fold back in. So a few anecdotes: I was going to Russia at least once a year for a few years. And one time I was a keynote at a conference with Zizek and he did this whole sort of like song and dance routine. And it was even more funny because uh, he played this sort of like uh, Stalinist game with everybody and it's in Russia. So, you know, like last founded. <laughs> um, but it's clear from my friends and colleagues there in Russia about the role that Zizek now plays or that he's been playing for the last 10 years. He's been hired by Russia Times as a commentator, which is why all of his hot takes seem to be coming out so much. I mean, the man just absolutely can't help himself. Yeah. But the reason he's hired by Russia Times is that he has become the exact sort of figure of cynical ideology that him and Sloterdijk were writing about in the 90s, where he's there to excuse all of the bad behavior of a country like Russia by calling the uh, by being a pot that calls the kettle black. No, that's that's a fascinating assertion to make. That's like the definition of, of an absolute hot take. It's something that I think makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, but we've sort of just accepted it. It's kind of his MO, but it's very much the MO of imperialist so-called communist countries like Russia and China in which 
they rail against the imperialism of the United States, but at the same time engaging their own series of sort of imperialist actions as well, maybe in a minor or slightly different sense, but it's, you know, the shoe still fits. Um, so they allow people like Zizek to do this sort of like game of calling people hypocrites and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so cynical ideology, I think it accounts, but I don't think what the academy is doing is so much cynical ideology in that way, like being hypocrites. I think it's much more in the realm of wish fulfillment, which would be to say that uh, you get to LARP or gameplay at being a radical without actually taking any of the risks or activity of being a radical. And so then you can sleep happily at night and you can get the psychic satisfaction of you know, fighting people on the internet and casting people out of your social circle or, you know, really crowding in on some sort of hashtag and moving it in some direction. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't have the same sort of impact of radical politics of the past, then, you know, it seems compensatory. I actually wanted to ask you about that because, um, so my background, I guess, in a way is that I came into this through critical theory primarily, um, partly through Marx, but I, I really got in through Frankfurt School and over time into post-structuralism. And over the past few months, by um, reading particularly um, Tikkun and The Invisible Committee, those have been sort of pretty almost life-changing reads for me in a way, the way they use thinkers like Agamben and Deleuze and Foucault and absolutely refuse to give any ground to the idea that um, these are fundamentally sort of liberal uh, thinkers um, is really, really refreshing to me. And so you mentioned um, ill will earlier. I was wondering what sort of, who are some of the authors or, or, or groups um, and so on um, active today um, who you think are doing things to sort of push uh, push that idea forward, that sort of engagement with these thinkers in a more radical way. Yeah. If your listeners are not as familiar with Invisible Committee and Tikkun, Tikkun was this, uh, I mean, there's a debate over what it is. Yeah. Is it just a name for a phenomena or is it actually a group? They refuse to be a, a subjectified group in that way. But anyway, let's just call them a French collective who are around for only two years, 99 to 2001. They were scholarly student types. Some of them, I think, already had degrees. One really essential figure in it, Fulvia Carnival, who I absolutely love, and I think she's fantastic. She's now part of the group, uh, uh, Claire Fontaine, the, the artist group, um, had moved from Italy to Paris to study in the Foucault archives. And so that's she's essential for understanding the Foucauldian reading and the Foucauldian spirit of everything. Um, and they did university occupations. They did hyper-radical sort of uh, political actions. And then due to personality clashes and everything, they sort of fall apart right around 2001. I, I read somewhere that it's in part because of disagreements over uh, how to interpret 9-11 as well. One part of that former group then write a document called Call, in which they call out to anyone who is listening, and they don't care about people who aren't, to say um, staying in cities and being part of the sort of anarcho scene there has become just a base exercise in rituals of activism that we already have been doing and that never work. And so let's find a new way of doing things. And some of them sort of in uh, place themselves within what they would call the biopolitical membrane of the metropolis in other places in sort of uh, 
uh, more rural areas where they think that they have more mobility to, to work and act. And then one group that's a part of it calls themselves the Invisible Committee. And then due to a series of uh, railroad sabotages, one of them, at, at least one of them, including um, a train carrying nuclear material in perhaps in collaboration with um, ultra-left green anarchist groups in Germany, uh, stop that train using just a really simple sort of like techno techno exploit of uh, putting iron bar over elec- electric uh, wires that help the, the trains go, um, are called um, anarcho-autonomous terrorists. The highest levels of the French state descend on them, arrest them, put a number of them in jail, and there's a extended sort of trial period that goes on for almost a decade. And they still continue to think and write over that period. So that's Invisible Committee. So... I mean, they're a rad group. They abandon the academy. They do political action. Obviously, I have some strategic disagreements with what they do, but they're a sort of node in which they've they've um, expanded in a variety of directions. One of them is the Zod, and there are controversies over like what came of it and, and who was what factions. But it was an autonomous region in France that was created through squatters from the anti-globalization movement who were occupying land in collaboration with farmers to prevent the uh, uh, creating an airport and airport expansion. And they were routinely assaulted by thousands of police officers in riot gear, and they were able to kick out those uh, police officers on multiple incursion attempts over more than a decade. And the Macron recently declared that they're not going to expand the airport after this, like, I don't know, multi-decade attempt to try and kick them out. So they were affiliated with that. Yeah. They were, um, they installed themselves in the yellow jackets protest or the yellow vest protests. Um, they're part of a larger sort of global network that call themselves sort of tikkunists. Though there's debates over who's actually part of that. There are presses like common notions who are helping sort of write and produce some of their stuff. Um, they're just about to put out a new book that are sort of by the, uh, tikkunists. There's a group called liaisons, um, they, they, in the name of the people, which is also sort of very Belizean and Foucauldian. Um, what else? I don't know. There are a lot of different sort of groups who do that. I, I like a group out of the Pacific Northwest who doesn't get a lot of um, uh, name recognition. They're called No New Ideas, and they, they put their text out through a Tumblr. I think that they're really great. So if you did No New Ideas press Tumblr, you'd be able to come up with their texts. And they've helped release some translations of uh, Jacques Fradin, who's a kind of a economist, but he's more like a Foucauldian critique of the whole concept of economics, saying in a very Foucauldian strain, like a, the physiocrats and the mercantilists of the oh, wow. uh, 18th century invented this idea of economics that we currently have and that to destroy economics is the point and that's how we get to communism. So anyway, there's lots of great stuff out there right now. Later on, we'll work to compile a list of a top 20 and then we'll just share it like via Twitter or something like that. We'll say Andrew Culp's top 20 books you should read 2020. <laughs> cool, that'd be dope. <laughs> okay. Hard to limit it to 20. Oh, <laughs> all right. Hey, let's go 50. Why not? <laughs> yeah, there's a this talk about all these different insurrectionary groups is is really great, and it's it seems like at least how I read the book of uh, Learns that what you're trying to do is to reinvigorate a certain uh, category of praxis that uh, I think it's the Kern not the Invisible Committee bring up in um, the introduction of the Civil War, the idea of the conspiracy, because you know even as the book starts, there's there's the shadow of of the Asaphalic of the Asaphal society, um, but you seem to follow Klosowski's critique of the Asaphal that 
the over embracing of what they call the sacredness of conspiracy, their, their project project of making everything hyper religious, hyper sacred, really diffuses too much into a sort of Dionysian affirmationism, doesn't really go anywhere. And just to turn back to uh, sort of the inspiration from Dekun, they want a conspiracy of bodies, not critical minds, but as they call them, critical corporealities. And this is part of what they're trying to get with when they're talking about the notion of the war machine as something that drives through material space and flattens it out, but in the way that doesn't actually identify itself. Instead, it's only it's not actually looking to play with recognised identities, but rather the conspiracy is sort of contact between things that aren't recognised, things that are invisible to the state apparatus of recognition. I just wanted to ask, how do you would you prescribe at least in this conspiratorial term that you've put forward how we would be becoming imperceptible? To the, to the apparatus of capture as they exist today. Is is there any room for the platforms of technology and the social media, or is it something we have to completely uh, negate or build something contrary to? So I think the simple take, if these concepts seem a bit too abstract sometimes, for the, the tikkunist uh, ethics of a constitution of a force through bodies that meet itself in an encounter through imperceptible forces, is the riot. So... Uh, a great example of this is the current George Floyd insurgency or uprising in which there are some people who have very vested interests that fall along the lines of organizational capacities, like really terrible, you know, pro-revolutionary groups like the, the RCP and the uh, Baba Vakian types, or even people who really love policing and telling people who's in and who's out. And all of those things cease being important or immediately appear as purely repressive when you're in the moment of a riot and you can feel the composition of who's there and who's doing what and who is pushing things in the direction in which you're escalating and winning a potential confrontation with the forces of domination and repression like the police. And identity really isn't the concern anymore, what label, what sign you might carry or what label or whatever. I mean, this is the way in which anarchists have always carried banners in part to be threatening or throw around a slogan or a chant. But in the moment in which things actually start popping off, a banner becomes a way to help hide your friends who want to start, you know, hacking away at a storefront. Or they become a way in which, like, even in Reclaim the Streets in the 90s, in which some things that look like just uh, elaborate sort of carnivalesque things, underneath it, there's someone with a jackhammer tearing up the freeway that you're, you're working to oppose through the protest. So that, I think, is very clear about what the sort of simple read of it is. I think the... More complicated thing is how does this work in a strategy that aren't just in those precious moments where you knew, know something's sort of going to happen and then it's popping off. And so, you know, this is Fred Mote and Stefano Harney's um, Undercommons, I believe, which is, you know, this idea of finding these furtive moments to come together that are often, you realize the university doesn't really help study. It's often contrary to study and puts so many obstacles and barriers in your place, but it's still this moment where you might find some people where you do a reading group on the side for no credit and not under official supervision, but becomes that important thing that you then dedicate your project or your life or something to. Um, and so I think imperceptibility is this sort of, you know, it's not necessarily elusive or a cat and mouse game, but it's something that isn't understands that it's, 
at threat of being captured and finds a way of evading it. So in terms of online platforms, I think it means that we need to use and abuse them. I think it means that we don't really follow the rules of how they're meant to be outlined, especially, you know, platforms like Facebook have uh, real ID policies in which they try and attach people to legal entities in order to make them accountable to certain norms and standards. Um, I don't think in a Kantian way that this works in terms of imperceptibility being a universalized ethics in which everyone follows it. Suddenly the world is good. I think it's the way in which partisans in a struggle against capitalism can exploit it, but it means that it's also something that our enemies can be exploited. And we see that with the alt-right and their terrible sort of politics in the way in which they've weaponized social social media as well. Andrew, you might be happy to know that I was just kicked off of the middle-class panopticon app next door. <laughs> for not oh, yeah, no, yeah. Perfect. I, I used it i used it kind of as an organizing critique tool because that thing is just a a monstrosity just go on it check it out i'm edged on a different community here in la and uh yeah it's not good oh next door is whack because it's it's mostly filled with property owners and property owners are some right, of the right. most backwards um, repressive, evil people. In I mean, world. I've seen these people, and I'll call them out right here. If you're listening, I'm talking to you, neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, they basically called for the murder of people who are suspected of crimes. It's just basically the, the, the boogeyman of, of the poor people living in the riverbed near. I mean, I got on there for a minute. And so somebody must have reported me. <laughs> Because my name, my name was kind of like, could that be a real name? Maybe it is, right? And then I just got bounced. I mean, there, there, there was an art movement in the 90s that they called themselves tactical media. And it was all like trying to find insurgent ways of using technology. It wasn't about adjudicating it good or bad, but finding ways to exploit asymmetries of the network. But they wrapped it in ideas of like openness and democracy and participation, which are, are none of the things that... I've ever believed in, but, you know, certainly the pe people who support it don't believe in that an anymore. So it's time to sort of reimagine what tactical media was after Web 2.0 has made participation a capitalist exploitation model to come up with new principles and new means to do whatever we'd want to call it today. That's definitely symptomatic in terms of the sort of the the very that very liberal notion of insurgence because it it seems also inherently tied to a liberal temporality of progress or optimism which is something that i i, I agree with your book and that we we can't afford to have we need to start hating the world I and mean, i was reading the um uh, fm3-24 a bit earlier today and it's it's the u.s army's counterinsurgency manual that uh, it explicitly says one of the best things is to exert the temporality of an insurgent army and the, the more time they think they've got the more that they think his time is positive to their uh, gains and it's on their side the more mistakes they're going to make we should all read the counterinsurgency by the way <laughs> so i wanted to sort of put two two related questions to you and um the reason is because they're ones i'm still trying to think through myself and i think they're relevant to this question of um political action i guess and so i i know you're familiar with sonnenshek and williams inventing the future so sort of the uh, left accelerationist manifesto i suppose um because you wrote about it recently or maybe, maybe it wasn't so recently on in, in, a, in a paper of yours and in there they provide what they call a critique of, of what we call folk politics um which in many ways seems to sort of map on broadly to anarchist uh, movements. And without sort of 
going into too much detail, um, one of the, one of the crit- critiques they, they level um, against this form of politics is that it's at best a kind of resistance against the forces pushing against them, and that you may succeed in you know um, preventing one hospital from being closed down, but you know you probably won't stop the other twenty somewhere else. And so I was wondering what you make of of, of this idea as it relates to um, an anarchist um, political praxis, given that this is um, something you're clearly very uh, involved in and, and, and very passionate about. Um, what do you make of that, of that sort of line of argument about the capacity of um, this former political organisation to not just um, resist in small local cases these global forces, but to... Um, play a more active role, particularly given the scale of issues like climate change, for example? Yeah, I think some of it, a lot of it is about where the starting point is. Like, what is an intellectual or a scholar or a thinker? Where are they? And what do they think the usefulness and purpose of knowledge is? So a really essential um, reference point for so-called left accelerationism of the Cernichik and Williams variety is Eden Medina's study of Project Cybersyn in Chile um, called Cybernetic Revolutionaries, in which you know the Allende um, government for about two years tries to implement a cybernetic approach to the economy in a socialistic-y kind of way. They bring in the British cybernetician Stafford Beers to sort of oversee the process and it fulfills. And and so he's like a national advisor to the president and he tries to do this national planning project. And the, um, it falls within a paradigm of what was called at the time, the Chilean approach to socialism in which it was a productivist approach that said that the political approach to socialism of let's say the Cubans or the Uruguayans in which they have guerrilla bands or they try and use some sort of force or military in order to bring about socialism is too antagonistic. So the Chilean approach is to work as a socialist government with capitalists to raise up industry in a way that will slowly work towards the workers' benefit and shift the balance of power of the economy towards a more socialistic approach. So in the end and you'll eventually have enough power that you'll be able to bring about more, a stronger, larger version of socialism. I think in terms of starting point, that's where thinkers see themselves as potential advisors to governments in which they're doing policy and planning proposals, in which they want to be in lots of meetings and they want to come up with national or international scale solutions to things. And I think that for my starting point, um, Maybe it's my own fault, but I would never be in a room with those people. I would never come up with a national planning project because I think that already to think in those terms means having to give too many concessions to, let's say, capitalism as as it already exists. I don't want to be negotiating with, uh, you know, bringing in... Uh, Peter Thiel from Palantir who helps, you know, run CIA operations. And I don't want to, you know, like, I think it would be incoherent for someone to ask me like, oh, so what is the insurrectionary communist and anarchist approach to, you know, a, a surveillance state? Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's just like the two very different places and conversations that I'd just never be a part of. I think actually this is this was a, a, a subheading title from one of your essays, or it was a section title. I think it was something along the lines of um, 
it's it's not clear that accelerationists would be so against capitalism if it wasn't developing technologies that they would like. Right. <laughs> and and I, I think, yeah, the break with the accelerationists is, is quite... It's, it shows um, itself particularly, and I think, in, in your concept of the outside, which, I, which I'd like to ask about in terms of the, the technicalities and specifics of. Because it's... In ter- we think about out the outside in terms of accelerationism, and in sp- especially we think about any Deleuzeanism that can be described uh, you know, as dark or you know, mad black, as Ray Brescia thinks about. We think of someone like, um, oh, hang on tight and spit on me, uh, Nick Land <laughs> and his concept of the outside. Not why? <laughs> well, no, because Nick Land's. You know, if if you read. Um, I'm not going to say what to read, actually, but um, if you read his work, when he's, he, he, is, he is entirely hostile to the notion of the outside. His whole reason for his social Darwinist fascist bollocks is that he thinks that the outside is, go- is hostile and it's going to kill you. As he says, there are wolves on the outside. There is a, an evil god on the outside, god, nature, or nature's god. And you, 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 know, you rightfully say that he, for all of his outsiders, he actually rejects the notion of the outside in any productive capacity. And I'd like just to ask... How do you take the notion of the outside as it is presented in, in the nomadology as this you know nomadic outside of self-organizing sort of molecules, maybe I'm not sure, or this global union, and how you sort of darkify it without going into the mad black Deleuzeanism territory of someone like Land? Of course, if you're talking about dark Deleuze. It isn't very long until you're talking about mad black delusionism. And if you want to hear Andrew's response to Adam's question, you can find it on our Patreon page by becoming a subscriber. Also, if you're not in a position to become a subscriber right now, just find us on social media and we will give that part of the episode to you. One thing that always helps us out is just spreading the word. Retweet, repost, do whatever with the episode and put Acid Horizon into someone else's ears. And if we don't hear from you, we will see you again during our Nietzsche and philosophy episode. In the meantime, take care of yourself and we will see you next time.